Hi there, I'm Nihal, and you're listening to the Rescue Tales podcast, the show dedicated to helping you settle your adopted rescue dog. In this episode, I chat with Kim Brophy about why we need to rethink our relationship with our dogs and move away from thinking of our dogs as pets and of ourselves as dog owners, but rather more like dog parents or carers. We also chat about why it's so important that we, as dog parents, are more aware of how our emotions get in the way of our dogs learning and living happy lives. Now, Kim is an applied ethologist and professional family dog mediator, working to solve problems between people and dogs with modern science. And if you're wondering what an ethologist is, well, they're scientists who study the behavior of animals in their natural environment. Kim is also a certified dog behavior consultant and a certified dog trainer, and she's the author of the must-read book, Meet Your Dog. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode. So hi, Kim, and thank you so much for joining me on the Rescue Tales podcast today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm super excited because as I was telling you before we hit record, huge fan of your book, which I think everyone needs to read, Meet Your Dog. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. Before we get into the numerous topics we're going to cover today, tell our listeners a bit about who you are, what you do, and your background. Uh, Sure. So I am Kim Brophy again, and I am an applied ethologist and a family dog mediator and dog behavior consultant slash trainer. And I intentionally have trainer at the end of that list. The trainer is kind of the um, label that I think is the most widely recognized for people that help working with dog behavior. But personally, and we'll get into these weeds, I'm sure at some point in our conversation, I think that it's an erroneous label and concept. So I steer away from that one a bit. But so my background being in applied ethology, small little niche field, studying natural behavior, biological basis as one who was an ethologist in nature would study animals in their own habitat from an evolutionary perspective, but specifically focusing on animals that are in captive or domesticated environments. So under human control and all the things that happen therein when we do take animals, whether they're domestic or wild and put them in captive situations, which is the predicament of our pet dogs, which is why I am studying them and working to mediate the relationship between people and their dogs in the 21st century. Love that. And on that note, you very vocal about your views of, you know, how we think about our dogs as pets and why we need to kind of shift that mindset. So tell us a little bit about that and, 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 and your thoughts on that and why you think that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I feel like we uh, sometimes don't have the context to appreciate the unique time that we have all found ourselves living in when it comes to dogs in the world. Dogs and humans have been coexisting together, working together, living together for 10 to 40,000 years, depending on what research you're believing and what the kind of current thinking is any given year. And only in our lifetimes have they gone from these kind of cooperative, cohabitating individuals in our environment who then we might work with and even breed and select for a specific job or task and where we were living largely outdoor agrarian lifestyles with them, where they still had environmental autonomy in most cases to follow their instincts and natural behaviors and where they might be inside with us, yes, as a, what we would consider to be even then a pet, 
but in a limited capacity and period of time throughout the day, because honestly, we ourselves weren't inside for most of that time. And so literally during the course of my lifetime, and I'm not ancient, so it hasn't been that long. When I was a kid, I grew up in a major city here in the US in Atlanta, and the dogs were still loose during my childhood. They weren't leashed most of the time. They weren't fenced most of the time. And so I grew up in this kind of conglomerate of the neighborhood dogs that they all had families, you know, of course, and went home to eat and sleep and all of that good stuff. But they also had a life. They would go jogging with neighbors, go visit friends, go chase squirrels, raid garbage. They had um, their own habitat and the autonomy to follow their instincts as well at that time, still the autonomy to reproduce as they um, naturally would. So what happened was for all our good intention, we made some critical mistakes in kind of moving them into this protective pet role where their, their niche, their environment, their reality, their lives was inside on a leash, in a fence, in the house. And then during all of this, of course, our lifestyle is moving increasingly indoors sedentary. And so because they were kind of our man's best friend, sidekick companion, as we started leading increased indoor sedentary lifestyles, they just went along for that. But what happened kind of post-World War II was, particularly in the U.S., I think the, the, probably the pet phenomenon was very distinct to privileged societies in more development where the idea was as we were increasingly comfortable and living with all of these luxuries we would share and extend all these luxuries to the dogs and cats too in our lives that we loved and frankly the pet industry as it was really starting to recognize this ability to exploit our incredible emotional bond and response to having dogs as pets and family members said, oh my gosh, there's so much money to be made here. Everyone needs a pet. So the first product is we have to sell to the public the idea that they need a pet too, and pets enrich your life. And they're so great and wonderful. So you need a pet. Then we can sell you all the other products and services that you'll need for your pet. And all the marketing started just revolving around that. And then, you know, what does that need to look like? What is the stuff? And then also what is the behavior of a good pet? And somewhere along the lines, we just completely lost the context of the 10 to 40,000 years that came before it, where there were no dog trainers. <laughs> you know, there was no need for all of that because there was a symbiosis in terms of our environment and habitats. Not in every situation, obviously. It's not that it's rainbows and unicorns, but it was functional, you know? And I think that piece of autonomy, we undervalue how much it is in terms of importance for the dogs and what a big deal it is that they've lost that. And so it's become a very accidentally selfish endeavor. As much as we love them, we will spend money on our dogs, even when we don't spend money on ourselves. Lord knows we care, but we keep getting the message that it's all about us. They should be what we want them to be. They're here to enrich our life, our families and should be what we want them to be. And we can rationalize therefore doing what we want to, to them, for them or not doing for them because they're our pet. It's just the messaging in that is that it's really all about us. And that's a cornerstone of our breach with reality that we have to just kind of shatter in terms of that paradigm and evolve forward from. I completely agree with everything you've said there. And I suppose my, my follow-on question to that is, 
how do you think of your dogs? How do you describe the relationship you have with, with your dogs? Yeah, no, that's a, you know, it's funny in all the podcasts that I've done, nobody has asked me that question. And I, I think of them as kids, but not in the same way as my kids. It's different. Of course, they're different species. They have different needs, but dogs are social animals. Like we are social animals. They're ancestrally nuclear family species, just like we are. Although they've moved away from some of, as we have the evolutionary pressures that would require that functional family cohesive unit and kind of the village, if you will, of the family, because it, it points in our evolutionary history, both of our species, we needed that to cooperatively hunt or cooperatively, you know, function to take care of things that needed to be done, protect resources, acquire resources, all of that. And so now we have much more disparate realities with dogs and with people, even in places where dogs are still loose, where they have looser social alliances and much smaller social alliances, but they're still centered around kind of rearing young. And I think that because dogs are neotenized animals, meaning they sh they have, they carry that selective result of domestication. So when we select against aggression and fearfulness of people, basically you get the, the neoteny phenomenon that comes along with domestication of they don't ever fully mature, therefore they never become as competitive, socially aggressive, territorial, all of that. So it's more like the golden retriever that we all think we can live with because they don't want to hurt anyone and they're cooperative, more go with the flow and all that. So because all dogs are on that kind of neoteny spectrum somewhere, they all are a little bit more genetically juvenile and dependent and kind of particularly in their captive situation, they're looking to us for information about this world that they found themselves in and how to navigate it. They are dependent on us genetically at this point because of the neoteny and they are dependent on us in environmentally, situationally because of the captivity. And so it fits. And I think it's one of the reasons why humans and dogs do get along the way that they do. They can recognize kind of parental social leadership communication from us. And we, of course, can recognize the types of behaviors in them that are cognitively very similar to a small child. And so that is pretty much how I approach my relationships with my dogs. Of course, recognizing those differences, I don't treat them like human babies. They wouldn't be respected by that and it wouldn't help the situation. However, I do talk to them like I would young children about everything that's going on in life all the time. As I see that it's my responsibility to help explain to them this world they found themselves in. I love that. And, and one of the things that actually as a result of listening to some of your content and reading your book that I've been a lot more conscious about is I no longer say refer to, you know, I don't, don't use the term dog owner. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I, I was never using it with the intention of thinking like, you know, this is a commodity you own, but I realized that that's the implication. And it's just so, there's so many subtleties in, how we label, you know, everything in life, everything from ourselves, our relationships, our, our, you know, our furry companions. And I think sometimes it's the self-awareness piece. And we were talking about this before we started recording is that often, you know, the way we project our own emotions can really kind of lead us down routes that are not necessarily helpful for for our furry companions so I think being mm. so conscious of like the labels and how we think of them and 
one of the things that you've talked about, you talk about this in your book, is is this whole idea of like there's no such thing as a good or bad dog. And I, and thinking back to what you just said about you know children and thinking them in a way similar to 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 children, there are differences, of course, but you wouldn't just label your child as bad because they did something that you didn't think was appropriate. So maybe tell us a little bit more about maybe expand on that like why is there no such thing as a good or bad dog and and why are sometimes those labels unhelpful yeah you know and so it's interesting because we're always riding the line of being human and our brains working the ways that they do that just have a tendency as all brains do for all animals to oversimplify categorize label so that it makes things more digestible and easier to talk about and so you know, we have to understand in ourselves and in culture, as we're trying to create this pendulum shift, this paradigm shift, that people have these kinds of points of reference in their mind for what a dog is and what a pet is and what an owner is and how they're supposed to obey us to these commands and all this. And it's like, we, we're trying to like gently shift it. Yes, shatter the mold, but also gently shift it. And I think all those messages have gotten in people's minds again because of the pet industry marketing and the idea that there should be a standard and and frankly the kind of pathologizing of normal behavior natural behavior in humans too actually as well as in dogs is is kind of a tempting phenomenon when we are getting behavioral dysfunction or behavior that we don't like to say, I like this presentation and this is good. This works, this is good. So when it's not working, we should get it closer aligned with the good so that it can work. And, you know, I think human mental health is another very sad example of how much we do pathologize natural phenomenon because like actually a cornerstone of evolutionary principles is diversity and even mutation as functional, normal and presenting opportunities for changes that can be very adaptive. So without diversity, we we wouldn't have nature. We wouldn't have the functional system that we have in the, in the world. And yet we have such a tendency to say, this is the normal. This is the little confines and the definitions of normal. And so if something falls outside of that scope, it is other than, and it needs to either be discarded or it needs to align to that. I'm not entirely sure how to get around that phenomenon because I know that if it's present in our own species and we do objectify, frankly, children, people, and dogs that way when they're not meeting our expectations, it's, it's going to be difficult for people to completely get away from their own humanness. All of that said, we really need to be talking about it. And so one of the kinds of things I'm trying to offer, because, you know, some folks have thought maybe there's some kind of an angsty vibe underneath the conversation I'm trying to start, that there's an us versus them, and we're revolting against the them as the us. And, you know, I'll say it again and again, we are the them, we are the us, we are the pet industry, we are the culture. And the only way we're going to evolve our thinking 
is by recognizing our own biases and the things that we have that have created these kinds of reactions and responses and projections in us. But you're right, terms and words matter and they carry weight, whether it's owner, whether it's obedience, even the word training connotes the idea that we are the powerful individual that can manipulate the behavior the way that we would like to do it according to our standards. So a lot to unpack for all of us in there. Yes. And now I have a dozen more questions for you. <laughs> but two things I want to pick up on, on, on actually, I think, you know, listening to you talk, it just reinforces, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot recently and, and we talked about before recording, which is I almost feel that absolutely we are the them. Absolutely. And I think this is a huge part of the problem is that there is this, there are these different sides and actually we're all, we are just them. And I love how you express that. If I'm completely open, I kind of went down that route and I kind of felt like I I was on a side. I'm like, oh, this is making me feel really uncomfortable. And when Mm -hmm. I took a step back and thought, actually, let me just scrutinize my own behavior first. Let me just scrutinize my own thoughts first. How Mm -hmm. am I thinking about, my dog and her behavior and we, you know we touched on this before we, we, we hit record which is you know for example feeling when she doesn't listen to to me when I call her to come that I'm embarrassed in front of people and then that my emotional state isn't impacting how I how I react to her right mm-hmm. so it's I found that process of actually just being more self-aware about how I feel, how I'm behaving and taking a step back and really observing her and, and asking like, cause she's ignoring me now. I wonder what's preoccupied. Where is her attention? And I'll try and look <laughs> and explore. And yes, there will be instances where I need her to listen because there's, you know, something that's dangerous or risky, or we, we need to go somewhere because I have an appointment. That's fine. But I think that's not every day all the time. And I found that so helpful in helping me move away from a side and just seeing myself as them and realizing where I as an individual might be going wrong with my own thoughts and biases and and perceptions. Um, Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, is that like 99.9% of their behavior isn't about us anyway, but don't we do that in all relationships, right? Like human and dog, we're like, whatever you're doing, you're in a mood, you're storming around. It must be about me. What's wrong? Like, (laughs) you know, we, we just, or, you know, our kid is doing bad in school and we're a horrible parent or, you know, everything is somehow some reflection upon us and our, that, I mean, of course we could go down some human psychology road and Andrew would be great to get involved <laughs> in this moment in the conversation, Andrew Hill, because he can help us appreciate, you know, that insecurity and the ego and the sense that others are judging us. And that makes us feel unsafe and vulnerable. Like, and I think, you know, this is why I think a humble, curious, open, and having just listened to a Brene Brown podcast, courageous (laughs) conversation, you know, about this is what's important because no one has all of the answers and, and nor am I pretending for a moment that this is an easy task. I think it actually goes to the core of challenging some pretty fundamentally insidious and powerful aspects of human behavior, psychology and ego and control and, and vulnerability that, you know, having worked with people in the context of their dog's behavior for 20 years, I can tell you that so much of what people are concerned about in their dog's behavior at the end of the day is the judgment 
from other people, their neighbors, their husbands, their friends that come over of how their dog is acting. That's, and, and that's them being honest. It comes out in little leaky moments of, well, you know, I mean, like, oh, so embarrassed. My mother-in-law came over the other day and the dog jumped on her and tore her new dress. And, you know, I'm not saying that just, you know, throw your hands up in the air and let the dogs do whatever they want. Actually, it is our responsibility to say, hey, kids, so you found yourself in this human world. And there's some things that we're just going to have to explain to you as far as humans and how they work and the kind of animal that they are and things that I can help you to appreciate are going to work better than other things that might be the first behaviors that come to your mind. So it's not at all that we're you know, that I am anti educating the dog, communicating with them about things like boundaries and appropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. You're right. That shift in perspective about what are they doing and why are they doing it? Recognizing it's probably not all about you recognizing you could have generations of reinforcement history behind certain behaviors, like your dog at the park, seeing all of those rabbits that mm-hmm. render you completely obsolete in the face of that. And that that's not a failure on your part or the dogs, or if there was a professional trainer involved on the trainer, like we have to just stop carrying that. We have to take that weight off our shoulders, set it down, dust off and say, that's not mine, but I can work with what I have. I can look at it. I can understand it. I can piece it out. I can organize it. And I can even make a plan, an actionable plan, Hmm. but it's different than this just kind of insistent, defiant, attitude of I'm going to control it and I'm going to make it do what I want it to do. So you touched on leadership a few moments ago and I often think people confuse leadership and helping us whether you're showing your kids or or dogs or you know partner boundaries and kind of showing what sometimes the expectation is does not mean that you are dominating or controlling and maybe let's just talk about like what's what are the differences because the dominance approach is so prevalent and Mm -hmm. I speak to people every day and and they talk about oh no you know you know your dog must obey you and I'm like no I don't want her (laughs) just or I want her to have some character and confidence to maybe sometimes have a mind of her own and that's and that's okay in certain situations absolutely help us understand what do you mean when you say leadership and what does maybe what does that look like in in practice yeah no so again the, the way that I found myself listening to a Brene Brown podcast this morning was that Ian Shivers who is in Australia he's a trainer there had just sent me a message this morning saying that Brene it was a quote of hers saying that clarity is kind And I was just like, oh, that's it. Of course, Brene Brown nails it again, as she so often does. That is a phrase that I've literally said before. And the flip side of that coin being that confusion is aversive. Confusion is deeply distressing and disturbing when we're like, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. I have mixed signals. I don't have a point of reference, Ah!" right? We just want to be able to calibrate to something Because then once we can reconcile what's happening, then we can take some appropriate actionable steps. And so 
what the way that I perceive our role in that is, is, you know, depending on whether the person is a parent, so that's relatable to them, or whether something like the idea of good upper management makes more sense to them. Sue Sternberg just did a presentation I saw she did at, at the Association of Professional Dog Trainers Conference last week, used the term escort, and I've used the term tour guide. I mean, all of these are like appropriate models, depending on which one kind of clicks for you, of Okay, imagine yourself in a situation, whether you're a child, whether you just started a job, or whether you have landed in a foreign country where you have no idea about the culture. Landing in that situation of, okay, I'm the kid, I'm in a situation I don't understand, I've started a new job, I'm in a place I don't understand how this business and company works and what my job is, or landing in that country where you go, what is going on? What is happening? What am I supposed to do? The first thing we do as social animals is look around like, does anyone else have any idea what's going on? Do you have a plan? Do you have information? Do you have intel? Can you help me understand how one catches a cab in this country or how I can find my hotel? Or if I'm a kid, you know, how I can navigate this social situation where all these people I don't know just walked into my hand. If I'm a dog, you know, what do I do when I go to the park and I see a bunch of rabbits and everything in my cells is screaming, go chase the rabbits. You were born to do this. And yet there's bicycles and kids going by and mom's looking at me scornfully because I should stop leaping and lunging and barking at the end of the leash. Our job is to help explain things to them, take them by the hand figuratively and say, let me show you how to interact with these circumstances in a way that will be functional and effective and cohesive for you and everyone else involved. We're supposed to have the plan. We're supposed to have more info and we're supposed to try to explain it to them in a way that makes sense about what works and what doesn't work. What does this mean? What does that mean? I think we overthink it when we get into the idea of dogs and dominance and alpha and what that means. And even the ideas of dog training and like thinking dog psychology is some mystical code you have to crack. Frankly, you get up in there in your own head and you say, how would I feel? This is where like connecting to the fact that our brains are very similar to theirs. We're both social animals. This is where humans and dogs are really not that different. And it's appropriate to say, how would I feel? And for us to say to clients or people we're advising counseling, how would you feel if you were in a shelter environment, you had no idea what was going on in this very institutional scary place and you've been there for days and you don't know where the people and the animals that you knew before you ended up here after that truck picked you up off your neighborhood block when you were just sniffing a leaf, you had no idea what was about to happen. You found yourself in a truck and now you're here. You have lost all points of reference for the environment, the social members, the players that you had. Now someone else comes in, they seem real happy and stuff, but you don't know them and they take you home and they feed you and that's nice and you've got a warm place and you're out of that loud shelter but what does it mean? And what is that? And are those people neighbors? Are, are they intruders? Are they a threat to our territory? Or are they our friends? And how about this cat? Like, you know, is it, did you let a raccoon into the house? Like, is it really okay that that thing's on the table? Like, they have so many questions. They have no idea. And here we are presenting the following week to a trainer with a, the list of the behavior problems and our training goals that we have to make the dog obey when a 
peep of his behavior might just be like him having no idea what's going on, asking a bunch of questions and frankly getting it wrong because he doesn't have the info. So to answer your question about my own dogs, parental tour guide, upper management, depending on the moment, I might look at it a little differently, but largely I look at it like kids that will never grow up and move out and go to college. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fantastic. And you know what, just listening to you talk about, you know, a rescue dog's experience. And I was just reflecting on when I brought my dog home. Rosa, she's, I was telling before, of course, she's a, a Podenko mix, so sight hound. And she was found in a field abandoned with, we don't know, she's, she was a stray with her puppies. You don't know if she was thrown out of a previous place or she'd always been on, on the streets. And she didn't stay very long in the shelter because they didn't have room for her. And they knew I was looking for a dog and they said, would you foster her? And I said, yes, but I don't think I will give her back to you. <laughs> because uh-huh. She was just incredibly, incredibly fearful. And when I got home, I couldn't get past the front door. She refused to come inside and she was so scared. And I tried giving a treat. First time dog parent, like I've had lots mm-hmm. of other pets, never had a dog. So I had no idea what I was doing. And I thought, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And I just took a moment and I thought, you know, when you have that instant feeling of, oh my God, I made a big mistake by bringing this mm-hmm. dog home. I'm just going to mm-hmm. fail the poor dog and I'm going to, you know, she's mm-hmm. going to be so unhappy and all these sores going through my head. And I thought, hold on, just how would you feel? Like put yourself in her paws. But, and that was the one question I kept asking myself and I'm like, well, I probably want some space. So maybe stop trying to pet her, stop trying to shove treats down her face and just take a step away. And then I did that and I'm like, just no pressure. Just, I would, I would want no pressure. I just would want space. I would want calm. So I just made sure I, you know, I created a calm enough environment. I bought like three beds, put them in different places. <laughs> like let, mm-hmm. let, let her figure out where she wants to be. And slowly but surely she did. And it was just, it was constant, just week after, you know, we got over one challenge and there was another. And that, the only thing that really got me through all of them was, how would I feel? How would I feel? And How I found I it was feel? just such a simple question to ask myself because sometimes it's just distance. Distance is such a powerful, to just take a step away and right? get rid of your own expectations. In my head, I'm like, I'm going to bring this dog home. She's going to be curled up on the sofa next to me. And, and I think now I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, what was I thinking? You know, she didn't want to be anywhere near me. <laughs> I was a strange person. And I think we kind of have this view of, you know, we've rescued this dog and brought it into the safe, amazing home. And they should almost, we, we think it, but we don't say it. they should be grateful. They should be grateful. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, because actually maybe they were happy on the street. You don't know that. Well, right. And there's, Scott, there's so many things you just said there that are so important. A, just validating again with a big fat exclamation point at the end of it. How would I feel is a scientific question to ask you guys, because we are all animals. So like, we have to stop thinking that there's this huge, big black line in the sand between humans and other animals, because there's not. And so when you take an animal from a situation that even if it was crap, they knew it, it was familiar. And then we completely pull them out of that and put them in what we project to be a fabulous situation. They should count their blessings to have. That that attitude has already pulled the rug out from under the dog because it's like, well, you should be 
acting like this, feeling like this, etc. And then, so what do we do when they're not? We call a dog trainer to come fix it with weird kind of operant strategies often that aren't necessarily recognizing what the whole big picture of this life experience and transition is for them. It's kind of like, well, they're such simpletons. If we just keep throwing some click and treat and, you know, whatever that, he will be conditioned to love coming in the house. He'll be conditioned if we click and treat it for him to want to lay next to you. And frankly, the dog just might be like, what is their deal with that clicky little box and them throwing cookies at me for everything? This is the weirdest reality. Quick note too, because I've, I've referred to this on a number of other podcasts, but it's, it's such a really powerful example for anyone who hasn't seen the movie Room. Um, it's about a boy who grows up in a garden shed because his mother was raped by someone who kidnapped her and then gives birth to him in a garden shed. And he spends the first four or five years of his life in a garden shed. And that's all he knew. And of course, that's a horrible reality. We would want to rescue anyone from that reality. The interesting kind of uh, curveball message in the movie is that his trauma really begins once they escape because he has no point of reference for the world he's found himself in. And I think that we minimize the profound trauma that that is to dogs partially so that we can cope with the horrible reality of how many dogs chronically are given up cycle through multiple homes and have a repeat trauma of that throughout their lives. But it's a really big deal. And it's not the type of thing that we're just going to fix with some little training that just suddenly renders that dog trauma free. So again, yeah, how would I feel? It's a pretty important question that sometimes puts the microscope right where it needs to be in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I certainly found that was so helpful. And, and, you know, the other thing, just picking up on what you're saying and is when when we just kind of at the first point of at the first kind of obstacle in our path think oh bring in a trainer it's almost like we're outsourcing the problem but it's actually our mm. responsibility and, and I I do think there are certain situations like when I started taking my dog when I finally got into the house and she's a bit more comfortable the next challenge and I thought oh let's go for a walk and I thought well she's going to you know very naively like didn't sit and think well if it was this hard getting her in guess what's (laughs) going to happen when we need to go out Uh walk down a hallway into an elevation nine floors down so I got her to the front door of course she was afraid of the harness so that was a whole other story um uh, but it took me about a week to convince her to come out and Every day I had to, several times a day, just walk outside the front door and just sit there. And every day she, she was curious, so she'd take one step and then some days she'd be like, no, ain't doing that. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then just one day, you know, after maybe she made it like a quarter of the way, she just followed me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's really interesting. I'm like, why did, like, I never forced her in it. And I'm like, oh my God, she trusts me. That's She's starting to trust me. And that that's moment I'm like, Oh my god! And I was, and I had, I wasn't prepared to go out because I really didn't. I thought, you know, like we're days and weeks away from actually getting into the elevator. She was still right. nervous, but I'm like, that's that's what distance and space and just listening and observing. And yeah. I and I was, I was so grateful in that moment because I'm like, yeah, oh, she trusts me. And that was when I'm like, oh, I have this responsibility, right? Yeah, I, I, this is on me to make sure that she feel and I, and I and I think if we just stopped and thought about and because you really have to be present and really 
consciously think about what's happening to recognize those moments. And I think if more mm-hmm. people, especially people who've adopted a rescue dog where, you know, they can be really, really fearful and they, you know, they yeah. can express that fears in ways that we might label as bad or whatever. But if you just right. take a step back and just think and observe and give them the yeah. space, amazing things can happen. And it's a journey, right? Oh, you just completely nailed that about the trust. And that's another thing that we've gotten really far away from and the whole operant merry-go-round that Andrew Hale describes, like in mm-hmm. all these conversations or in these polarized debates about like, how to train the dog. And so someone comes in and already it's with this idea of, I'm going to get your dog out the door because you need to take your dog out. And so you're a client and you called and you have a need and dang it, I'm going to show up and deliver for you. I'm going to figure out how to get that dog out. I'm going to pull all these things out of my bag, all these tricks of Mm. ways to try to manipulate, seduce, lure, tempt, pressure, maybe threaten, depending on the, you know, training approach, correct, for non-compliance. I mean, there's so many weird projections in that moment. And the funny thing is, like you said, it's actually not even about the door. It's and in part going out in the world, of course, presents a whole other big, here the dog is like, what's going on? What just happened? I don't have any point of reference for for this. And then you say, would you like to go out? And they go, now I have 30,000 more questions. What's out there? What does that mean? Where are you taking me? What's gonna happen there? Are we gonna come back home? Are you gonna leave? Like, no idea. Right. And so it kind of opens the floodgates to their panic to go out, but it's symbolic in a way. And the only bridge that's going to get you there is social currency Mm. trust. Mm. It's like, and and that's the part I think we've forgotten. That is a big baby. We threw out the bathwater when we moved away from the dominance model and all the horrible things that go along with it. Mm. We threw out social psychology in the world of dog behavior and training and rescue. Like if you just have all the operant tools and tricks in your bag, that's all you'll need. And so just shape the behavior. And it's like, well, I mean, if I thought that my relationship with my husband was based on him shaping my behavior, it wouldn't be the relationship that it is. It's not trust. It's not social currency. It's something that maybe I could learn to function in, Yeah. but it's then, then it's transactional, right? Instead of meaningful and something that, you know, the, the for me, the goal of everything about the family dog mediation model as an offer to replace the dog training model is you are teaching clients, teaching families to be something the dog can hang their hat on. Mm. That's the cornerstone. Mm. And everything that goes into being something that your dog can hang their hat on. Mm. And it's so different. The emphasis is so different from train it. Mm. And and I I can see why it can be difficult for people to kind of realize, let me flip it. I think it's really easy to buy into the operant model and training and everything because we we are conditioned, just the nature of the world we live in today for quick fixes, outsource stuff, you know, we outsource everything in our life. You do it. You know, like we all do it all the time. It's like Mm -hmm. someone else can deal with this. Just fix it and bring it back when it's, you know, almost like your dirty laundry. Just go do the laundry and bring it back to me clean and ironed, right? Right. You know, 
my interpretation understanding of what you're talking about is is actually there's the onus is on us as dog parents to actually take the time to understand to reflect to consider you know what Andrew often talks about your dog's emotional experience right mm-hmm. and that was that was an eye-opener when I spoke to him and 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 he helped me understand the difference between an emotional state which I was hyper fixated yeah. on and the emotional experience I'm like oh okay I get it now I, right. I think I saw I don't think I'm I'm there but I'm getting there and yeah I think it's interesting so when I reflect on my own journey with this podcast and the questions and how my questions have evolved over the the, the 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 past several months is going from realizing like trying to trying to find answers like I asked you before we started recording so you know if it's not if it's not you know dominance or whatever what do people actually do and what I'm realizing is that's the wrong question to ask it's how do mm. I need to think about this differently and in and I personally think it's harder and much more of an investment from our end as dog parents and carers. Mm-hmm to then have to consider and think about, okay, what's best for my dog? Because they are individuals. They are not, you know, just because you have a, a podenko or a retriever or whatever dog or whatever mix, you can't take a cookie cutter approach. Right. It doesn't work. And I think maybe that, I wonder if that's why we, including myself, is sometimes resist, keep looking for the answer. Whereas- right it's almost like, no, we need to reframe our own questions. Right. Yeah. 100% that makes sense. I mean, and I think that's why, you know, when I started having these realizations at the beginning of my career, because I was having this like total dissonance between my education and applied ethology Mm. and frankly, a whole heap of different scientific disciplines like human psychology and then ethics and like sociology and anthropology and like biology you have all of this stuff and then you have dog training mm-hmm. and it was like I was I just couldn't reconcile the elemental logical gaps therein mm. in this whole idea and what what you're talking about is that once you go all the way around all of the things that help us understand what we're actually looking at and this individual being that we are sharing our lives with that we've you know found in our homes it's almost like it renders a lot of the questions and therefore the answers of how do i obsolete it's like well why once i know this why would i even do that why would i even want my dog like for instance how would i get my dog to be friendly with my guests. That's a really common one that we get all the time. Okay. Mm. I want my dog. I've had three golden retrievers. I just got a, you know, German shepherd mix with a severe trauma past and he growls and he, you know, barks and, and then he goes away and lays down for a minute. And if they move or stand up or talk too loud, he comes back in growling and barking again. And I want to be able to have people over. So make my dog. So how can I make him friendly to people? Mm. And historically dog trainers will come in with a variety of things. Either you make them obey and you just make him do a down, stay over there in his place, or you are using food or something else to try to create a conditioned emotional response to the presentation of the human entering your home. And you're trying to shape him to like people instead of being curious about what's going on for him. What are his questions? Forget my questions for a minute. What are his questions? What does he not understand about what's happening? So 
what are his needs? What is the what is the pressure? What is the opportunity for a relief? How can I how can I recreate mm. the presentation of this whole reality so that on the front end the dog feels safe? Because I'm recognizing that's what this behavior is about. He's actually asking about, is he safe? Are you safe? What do I do? How do I handle this? What does it mean? So knowing if I can recognize that's what's going on for him, I can preemptively set up a reality when people come over that answers all those questions. Like you're safe here, do this. Just wait here. No pressure. You can watch from a distance, maybe behind a baby gate, one room away, eating your favorite bone that you only get when people come over and there's no pressure. And then after they've been here a while and the dust is settled and you've already gotten to see that I'm safe because you can read my social body language, like through social referencing and understand the dynamic and the, the terrain of this situation. Then once you've been able to do what Laura Donaldson very accurately emphasizes and describes as cognitive reappraisal. Mm. So I've been able to reappraise that situation and go, oh, 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 I thought it was an intruder. It's not. It's just your friend, Bob. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Now that I know that as your German shepherd mixed with a traumatic past, I can re-enter the same moment from a different headspace, different, it's again, you know, a different emotional experience. Mm of that same moment. And it's really not about just this like conditioning, right? Because conditioning sometimes can actually confuse the dog more. Like, why are you trying to get me to do tricks and eat treats while the person's over? I, I have questions about the person. Sure. I'll eat the treats, but it's kind of like, someone's come in your house with a gun. Would you like some popcorn while you're trying to figure out if he's going to kill you? It's like, I do like popcorn, (laughs) but is he going to kill me? Like, (laughs) you know, just, just reconcile the reality in that moment for the dog first. And then half the time you're like, Oh, I don't even need to train the dog. Never mind. I I think that's, that's a great example. I was interviewing um, someone in the UK and she was talking about how we sometimes create emotional conflict mm-hmm. in, in our dogs by doing, by doing things like that and associating things that they love with things that they might be scared of or fearful of and not actually acknowledging their experience and, and emotions. So it was really interesting because yesterday I was um, walking with the dog walker because I was going to the gym and she was taking my dog with, with, with her pack and my dog Rosa, whenever she's with that particular pack of dogs, if another dog comes anywhere near them, she just starts barking and lunging and she takes that protective role. So we make sure that when they're walking a pack, she's always on, on leash. And there was a Doberman that came, you know, was walking by and she just went absolutely ballistic. And the trainer knew the dog and knew the owner and just very calmly spoke to, to my dog Rose and like, it's okay. And calmed her down and very slowly took her to approach the other dog. It was really controlled. And mm-hmm. within a minute, she, she just calmed down and her tail starts wagging. Mm-hmm. And I thought she could have done the complete opposite yanked her of course she wouldn't because I wouldn't have a dog walker who does that, but she, she could have yanked her and said, no, sit and told her off because she was doing but what she didn't, she didn't do that. She acknowledged and recognized why she understood that there was a dynamic, there was a pack and that Rosa takes a particular role. And that role is quite important mm-hmm. for her and that she wasn't doing anything wrong. And she just mm-hmm. needed to gently introduce it so she could see that this dog was absolutely no threat 
and they went right. off to go walk. And it was just right. Such... She answered the question. Exactly. And it was just yeah. so amazing to watch because I always see lots of people, as soon as their dog starts showing any kind of sensitivity towards another dog, it's yank, tell them off, punish, you know, just so, so I think that's great advice for anyone to just reflect on is like, what are they going through? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the example you just gave there is, is one where, you know, I think it's important to reflect on how even positive reinforcement that we've historically projected on, you know, to that idea that like, well, at least you're not doing any harm. If you're using positive reinforcement, at least you're not making things worse. I used to think that I used to drink that Kool-Aid when Mm. I started in the industry. And then I started realizing we can do tremendously aversive things because confusion is aversive. So I really have a lot of criticism of some of the quite popular techniques that we have been using. And I'm not critical of the individuals using them. I myself have historically, I'm critical of the prolification and think we Mm -hmm. should examine them. So in the example you gave, like had she thrown treats all over the ground and done a scatter, you know, which is a really popular training technique. So here comes something scary I'm going to make something good happen Mm. to distract you, to shift you, to do something else, but it's arbitrary. So if the dog, let's say we do that every time, comes to believe that when another dog is coming, you are going to throw treats out all over the ground, we might be able to create a behavioral sequence Mm -hmm. and the emotional response where the dog sees another dog and they look at you in your treat pouch, like, are you going to do it? And we go, see, it's a win. It's a win. Yeah. Okay. Maybe then what we've done is been able to say in this situation, this is how we're going to handle it. I'm going to throw all this stuff on the ground, but what happens when the dog is in a situation where we don't have the treats, we aren't able to distract and we still never answered the question Mm. about whether they're safe. Mm. We just kind of, we put it on a shelf in a way. It's kind of like, I'm not really answering the question, nor am I myself in my relationship with you earning any social currency. Uh, Again, it's transactional. Mm. It's functional to a point, but it's never getting beneath the surface Mm. of, what is their question, concern, need, et cetera, that's going on in this moment? Yeah. And I think sometimes that's often a lot less complicated than we might think it is. Yes. And, Completely. and you touched on this earlier is that sometimes we really overcomplicate some of this stuff, but it's just put yourself in their pause. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, and I think uh, there's been so many examples so this, I mean, this is kind of a funny like thing to look at, but so again, human beings have been coexisting with dogs for 10, for 10 to 40,000 years. Mm. We've been able to do all sorts of amazing things with them without professional dog trainers, without really a great understanding of operant conditioning and how it works. Yeah. So sometimes I would argue quite frequently, we overcomplicate the daylights out of it with training plans. When there's plenty of people that have absolutely fluid, perfect relationships, communication, trust, understanding, et cetera, with their dogs Mm. that don't know squat about the science of learning and animal training. And, you know, so it's this contradiction, right? Because Mm. having the science and understanding of how behavior works and how it functions and how we can operantly change Mm. behavior 
is has miraculously transformed and informed our practices to be more humane generally across the board with how we do work mm. with and change behavior. But it's so much power that we forget to recognize what we're wielding and humble ourselves to first ask, but should you train that dog to do that? Yeah. Is that really what's in the dog's best interest? Is that really going to get to the heart of it? Should you start it, even if you're doing it kindly? And I, I think that's important that we come back full circle to a little bit of a simpler set of questions, like you're saying. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's, that makes perfect sense. It's not easy, but I think it's a learning journey for us all. Kim, I cannot thank you enough for taking this time. I've enjoyed this conversation so much, so much food for thought. I'm really grateful um, to have you on the podcast with me today. Oh, well, you've just been a blast to chat with too. I'd do this again anytime. Thank you, Kim. <laughs>